Life podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. Well, good morning, church family. Good to see you all. We're going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians 13 here this morning. We've been working our way through uh, spiritual gifts, what the gifts are. I've uh, been teaching on uh, some of those, uh, those things. And uh, over the past few weeks, we've been looking here in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, because this is all in line with the spiritual gifts. Uh, Paul has been defining for us uh, what the spiritual gifts are in 1 Corinthians 12, and then he starts talking about love. And it's not because Paul's wanting to be romantic. Uh, He is giving all of this in connection with spiritual gifts because the Corinthian church was using their spiritual gifts in such a way that it was bringing about division in the body, uh, and they were not being used in love. And so Paul then explains what love looks like, what it is. And uh, the Corinthians, uh, you know, they were, they touted as being very spiritually gifted, but they lacked love. Uh, in how that they were supposed to be using those gifts. And um, so the, the gifts were not the issue, but rather the lack of love was the issue uh, in this church. So let's read uh, 1 Corinthians 13 here again. Scripture says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the, perf- when the perfect comes... The partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Last week, we saw how love was described. Remember, there was two positive statements that uh, the Scripture gives, that love is patient, love is kind, but then it was followed by seven negative descriptions of what love is not. And uh, here, Paul kind of sums a lot of this up, these descriptions of love here in verse 7, which we're going to be looking at here today. And he concludes here of what genuine love is 
by showing us that love will always practice and possess these four things. What are they? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So this is what I'd like for you to take away with you today. God has a standard of what genuine love is characterized by. God has a standard of what genuine love is characterized by. And so then the question is, am I living up to that standard? This is God's standard. Am I living up to that standard? God has spoken in his word authoritatively. This is the standard of what love is characterized by. Am I living up to that standard of what God says love is? So let's take note here a few things. Uh, We're going to go through this. First of all, we have to answer a question. Does he really mean all things? Because notice our text here. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In this verse here, Paul speaks of four qualities of love, different qualities of love. And this verse is really concise and it's very powerful because he sums it all up. He says these are the qualities, the descriptions of love. It really just consists of these 13 words. Four of those words are verbs. You see them there, bears, believes, hopes, and endures. And these phrases are all connected with the word all, all, all these things, right? Believes all these things, believes all, hopes all, right? And notice how this verse is laid out. At the center of it, what do you see? You see love believing all things and hoping all things. But on the ends here, you have love that is bearing all things and enduring all things. I think that's really interesting about that. What does love bear? What does love endure? What does love believe? What does love hope? All. Love bears all, believes all, hopes all, endures all. And so how do we understand this that he says all things? Does he really mean all things? things in this instance? Does it mean that love puts up with all offenses without complaining? Does it mean that love believes whatever it is told, true or not? Does it mean that love hopes for things that most likely will not come true? Does it mean that love endures even the worst abuses without doing anything about it? So how do we explain this all things? Does he really mean all things? Do you remember the previous verse from verse number six, what he had to say about love? He says here in verse six, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Is this a contradiction in scripture? On one hand, you have Paul saying that love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but now he says that love believes all things. When I was a kid growing up, uh, I have an older brother, younger sister, in the house that we were living in there. Um, I remember as kids, you know, kids do crazy stuff all the time. You know, we, we destroy things. That's really what we do in the house, right? I never realized how, much, how many times my dad was just coming behind us fixing stuff, you know, in the house because it was constantly being destroyed. But uh, I remember one instance uh, there in, the, uh, in our house, my dad went to go uh, in, the, in the bathroom there to go shaving, and uh, he got his razor out, and we started shaving. He goes, ow! And he's looking at the razor blade, and there was chunks of wood 
in the razor blade. And he's going, what is this? So he starts looking around, and then the cabinet, the, the, the bathroom cabinet there, somebody had taken that razor blade and shaved the corner of the cabinet with it. And so my dad's like, hey, he's like, what is going on here? So he calls all three of us in here, and he says, hey, what happened here? Who took the razor and shaved the cabinet? Not me, not me, right? Well, my sister kind of fessed up to it, and she said, well, she said, I was playing with the razor, and it was on the, on the edge of the cabinet, and it fell, and it shaved the cabinet. <laughs> Does love believe that? No, okay? You wouldn't say, yeah, you know what? I really love you, and I really believe that that's what happened. No, it does not work that way. So would Paul here, would he be contradicting himself, saying that we don't rejoice at wrongdoing, but then say, love believes all things? I don't think that Paul would say that love willingly tolerates wrongdoing and is naive and gullible, believing all things, even false teaching, and lies without discernment or discrimination. You see, we know this to be true because there are several other Bible passages that tell us not to believe and trust. Also, we are not to put up with false teaching and sin. So what does Paul mean by all things? Well, we see here that the word all in our English vocabulary is taken at face value and means everything without exception. Everything without exception. When we look at our English language and we see that word all, we, we look and say, well, we believe everything without exception, because that's what it means, all. But, however, the word all that is used here means all sorts of various categories. So not everything without exception. Let me give you a good verse that I think uh, could help us grasp this use of the word all. Uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, 10.23, we see Paul using this, uh, this phrase here. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Clearly, Paul doesn't mean that everything is lawful without exception. If that was the case, there would be no such thing as sin. So Paul does not mean here in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, that love bears, believes, hopes, and endures all things without exception. If that's the case, then what does he mean then? Well, he means that in various situations and categories, that there are no limits to love. The emphasis is on love. When we think about this, there are no limits to the endurance of love. Love never gives up. Love bears and endures all. When Peter asked Jesus how often he should forgive a brother who keeps on sinning against him, remember that there in Matthew 18, 22? Jesus said to him, basically, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Basically, he said, remove the limits of love is what he was saying. So how? How does love put up with so much? Well, remember last week what we were talking about? Love is patient and love is kind, right? So he says, look, if love is going to be able to do this in all things, all situations, right? We look at that, we say, well, love is patient, love is kind. 
We have learned that love has a long fuse. Love extends kindness to those who don't deserve it. Love is not offended when good comes to others instead of self. Love exhibits humility. Love is not indecent, self-seeking, or irritable, even when provoked. Love does not keep records of offenses. Love does not celebrate when others fail, but rejoices with the advance of truth. How does love act this way? Because the foundation of love is faith and hope. It's faith and hope are in God. So Paul is not contradicting himself here, but rather helping us to see that there are no limits to love. And so with that understanding of the fact that he's not meaning everything here, right? Let's look at these four characteristics of love. And let's, what we're going to do is we're going to start on the outside, right? And then we're going to work our way in. So we're going to work, look at the two on the outside and then work our way uh, to the uh, two in the, the middle there. So let's look at the, the uh, next one here about this. Secondly, love always holds up. Love bears all things. That's what he says. Love bears all things. Love always holds up. This word translated here about bearing can be translated in different many ways. You can find it as bears all things, always protects, puts up with things, and covers all things. This word comes from a root word which means roof. The roof on a house or a building. So we can say that love not only covers, but it also has a capacity to hold up rather than fold up. It covers and it holds things up. Let me give you a few ways that this word is used in Scripture to help us understand this. Proverbs chapter 10, verses 11 through 12. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals... There it is. The covering conceals violence. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So if this is how Paul is using this word here, He's saying that love, basically what it does is it hides from view the sins of others, covering them, protecting them from view, and thus protecting the sinner from some of the consequences of his sin. So does this mean that we ignore the obvious sin of a brother or sister? You see, we will do something about the sins or weaknesses or shortcomings in a biblical manner, but we will not speak about it for others to hear. Love protects the erring brother or sister as much as possible. Why? Because love protects. Now, let me be very clear here by, by saying this, by this covering of the sin, okay? This does not mean that we cover up sin or keep it hush-hush, okay? We never cover up sin, especially in the case when it's harming others in the form of abuse or dangerous situations or lying for others. Cover up for them, to lie for them. Okay? This covering is a covering of the shame of sin. So he's not saying, well, we just act like nothing ever happened here. right? So if there is sin, we need to deal with it in a biblical manner. But there is a covering 
so that it protects the individual from the shame of sin. You see, sin is very shameful, and love does not wish the sinner to be shamed more than necessary. In Genesis uh, chapter 9, verses 20 through 23, we think we have a really good example of this. We read about Noah's son, right? Ham, Ham broadcast his father's shame to his brothers when Noah was drunk and naked at his tent. And what did his brothers do? They covered him, right? They wanted to cover up the shame of what sin had done. And so it prevented them from viewing his shame. Just as a roof covers and protects, which is one possible meaning of this word here, love bearing of covering is us covering the shame of others in sin. Love does not parade around the sins of others, putting them on display, humiliating the sinner. And I think this fits uh, really good within the context here of uh, verse number 6 in uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is what he says, that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. You know, it's not making a show of it and, and trying to parade people around. Matthew's gospel sheds further light on this matter of our covering when Jesus teaches about church discipline. We are to go privately to the individual in Matthew 18. So if there is if there's a conflict between an individual, and by the way, you don't always have to go to an individual, right? Because you can look over other people's offenses, right? Some people are just very, they get offended really easily, okay? But you don't always have to go to somebody and talk about what that person did or said, right? You can look over their offenses. But if you need to go to the individual, what are you supposed to do? Go privately. This is not a time to broadcast it on Facebook, to call up all the individuals, to get them on your side. No, you go privately to the individual and you tell them of the things that are going on. And then if that person is not work with you, right? If then you bring in more and more people, okay? Why is that? Because there is a covering of the shame of that. That's how, that's how church discipline is supposed to work. And so if the person does not repent, okay, the matter is not uh, settled, uh, then uh, basically what ends up happening is uh, the whole church then ends up becoming notified of the thing, and then he must be publicly rebuked and treated like an unbeliever because they are unwilling to repent of a particular sin in which they are involved with. And so you try to keep it as private as possible, but if, as, more, as it progresses more and more, it becomes more and more public. And uh, so by doing that, we are supposed to treat them as one who doesn't know God and is in need of the gospel. It doesn't mean that they're kicked out of the church, right? But we treat them as an unbeliever. We give them the gospel. We tell them, hey, you need to repent because they are acting like an unbeliever. And so that's the whole purpose of, of church discipline there. And I believe this is true of biblical love. Love always seeks to keep sin, the sin of a wayward brother, as private as possible. But this does not mean that we cannot and should not be confronted publicly if all private efforts have failed. Do you remember back in the garden with Adam and Eve? Remember when they sinned? And immediately after they sinned, what did they do? 
went and hid, right? And what did they do with those fig leaves? Tried to make clothes, right? Because there was shame now. And they were there, and they, they realized that they were naked. There was shame there. And as they're there, God comes looking for them. Now, God doesn't sit there and say, well, Adam, I love you so much. Hey, nothing really happened, right? No. He deals with their sin. How does he deal with them? He calls them out. He says, where are you, Adam? Where are you? Now, God knows where they are. Who told you that you were naked? Right? Did you eat of the tree? See here, he's dealing with it. Did you directly disobey my command, Adam? Did you do this? Right? There's a dealing of the sin. And what does God do in his grace and his mercy? He covers them. He takes animals and he slaughters them and he clothes them in the coats of animals. And he covers them. Now there's, there is a remembrance of that sin because here they have been kicked out of the garden. And don't you think as the world is being populated more and more and more, people are going, hey, how come we can't go in that place over there? How come we can't go in there? Well, I got kicked out. Why? I disobeyed God. See these clothes we're wearing? This is God's covering. He's been very graceful to us. He's been very merciful to us. And you know what's interesting? Later on, we see on Calvary, Jesus Christ himself, he bore, he takes upon himself the sin of us. And the Bible's very specific here. It says that the clothes that he was wearing, they were stripped from him. The people, the soldiers at the cross, they were gambling for his clothes. Christ there, what is he doing? He is bearing the shame and the guilt of our sin completely. And what does he do now? He covers us with his grace. And so God's very clear about this covering. Love covers the shame of our sin. Another way that this word is used is not only as a covering, like a roof, but also as a bearing. Here's some other ways this word bears is used. 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 5. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions... For you yourselves know that we are destined for this, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul uses the word here in the sense of carrying a load or bearing up under difficulties. He could carry the burden no longer. We might say he could stand it no longer. The other place that Paul uses this word is in 1 Corinthians 9.11. And I believe it has the, the same connection here with the all things in this. 1 Corinthians 9.11, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything, he says, rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And so Paul says we voluntarily give up our rights and we willingly carry any load 
We bear any burden, we endure any hardship rather than hindering the gospel. Paul is holding up his own conduct as an example of how he wants the Corinthians also to put to the advance of the gospel in first place, so much so that they become willingly to endure anything for the sake of the gospel, even a violation of their own rights. You see, we have to get it out of our minds. This life is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about what we want, what we desire. It's all about him. It's about his glory. It's about magnifying him, not about ourselves. And so even when we talk about the gospel and we talk about being willing to bear the burden of things, even our own individual rights, right? We're talking about that we are willing for the sake of the gospel so Jesus Christ would be magnified and glorified. We are willing to bear anything. And so love bears all things, even for the sake of the gospel. The word can also be used here, this bearing up of a load. So love never caves in or collapses under duress. Love always holds up. So don't be deceived in thinking otherwise. You see, as a believer in Christ, are you bearing all things for the good of others? Is this the pattern of love that we are following? If not, we really need to confess our lack of love and obey our Lord's words. So love always holds up. Now let's look at the, the, the second end to this. Thirdly, we see that love always perseveres no matter what. So on the outside of this verse, love bears all things. And on the opposite end here, we see now that love endures all things. Now, does it seem that it's the same as bear all things? Love bears all things and love also endures all things? I mean, is he kind of like repeating himself here? No. This word carries the idea of patience and means to remain behind. Let me give you a few ways this word is used in other verses. Luke 2.43, the young boy Jesus remained behind in Jerusalem. Acts 17.14, Silas and Timothy remained behind in Berea while Paul went on to Athens. And so this idea of staying behind does not mean being left home when everyone else goes off to battle. Okay? Quite the opposite, they shipped Paul off for his own protection because the Jews from Thessalonica had followed them to Berea and were agitating and stirring up the crowds against them. And so to stay behind means to stand and fight, to hold your ground, to be steadfast, to persevere. We see in classical Greek, it was often used in military context. Jesus points his followers to the need of this kind of perseverance. Listen to what he says in Matthew 24, 9. Okay? This is the perseverance. This is the endurance that we need as believers in Christ. Listen to what he says. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who 
endures to the end will be saved. And so endurance, as what Jesus says here in Matthew 24, 9, is shown in enduring hatred, persecution, betrayal, execution, false teaching, lawlessness, and a love that had grown cold. Endurance means remaining faithful to Jesus whatever the cost, holding steadfastly to the truth of the gospel as Jesus taught it, tenaciously persisting to love others even when that seems irrational and dangerous. This is the kind of love that we are called to put on display. Love endures all things. The author of Hebrews holds Jesus up to us as an example of patient endurance. Listen to what Hebrews 12.2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, help me out, he what? Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You see, Jesus endured the cross. He endured hostility from sinners. We could take hearts and stand our ground steadfast in love. So what then is the difference between bearing all things and enduring all things? Well, the difference here is a very subtle difference. We could say that bearing all is like a roof that supports a limitless load, where endurance puts up with abuse for a limitless duration. Think of all the apostles, right? And the hardships and the difficulties that they endured for the sake of the gospel. I mean, Paul said, five times I received from the Jews uh, 40 lashes save one, right? Like, he was, he was beaten by a rod three times. He was shipwrecked a night and a day in the sea. Right? This is all these things that Paul endured for the sake of the gospel. And so it's, it's this limitless duration. Love, Paul tells us, does not run out of time. Love lasts. We'll see this next week as Paul talks about love will remain even as spiritual gifts will pass away. And so no matter how difficult the trial, love bears up under it. No matter how long the trial, love perseveres. This was certainly not the case with the church at Corinth, and we see that. When they couldn't resolve their differences, what did they do? They took each other to court. They said, I'm not willing to bear with you. I'm not willing to endure with you. So you know what? We'll just take, we'll just take our battle to court, and we'll, we'll sue each other. Right? No. When the Corinthians were having marital problems, you know what they did? They pursued after divorce. They said, I'm not willing to work this out. So what we're going to do? We're just going to get divorced. This is, this is the mentality that they had. They were not really showing love. And so how do we view our endurance? Are we asking how long? Or are we quick to throw in the towel with the excuse, too long? I cannot endure it. How are we doing in displaying persevering love in various situations? So love always perseveres no matter what. Here's the next one. Love always has faith. Now, working our way from the outside, let's move into the inside here. Love always has faith. And so now here at the core, what do we see? We see that love always has faith, believes all 
things. How do we do this? How can we love like this? What motivates a love that supports a limitless load and endures for a limitless duration? A love that remains steadfast in the face of hatred, betrayal, false teaching, even the threat of death. How can we do this? How can we always have faith in these matters? This is love that is beyond our capability. We can't do it. This is supernatural love. Where does it come from? And I think this verse answers this question for us, right? Because love is able to bear all and endure all today because love doesn't look at the present circumstances. It doesn't focus on this life only. This is why the prosperity gospel thrives so much because it's about this life. It's not about the next life. It's about having peace now. It's about having what you want now. It's about feeling good now, right? That's the prosperity gospel. And so if we are going to be able to endure all these things, we have to know that it's not about this life. It's about looking towards eternity, keeping our eyes focused on Jesus, looking ahead, right? It's the whole thing of telling us to set our minds on the things above, not on things here on the earth. This kind of love has its Eyes fixed on eternity, believing all and hoping all. We see in the text, love believes all things here. This word believes is often translated as the word faith in the New Testament. So we can say with assurance, love never forsakes faith. Of all the many times Paul uses this verb, believes, we find here in our text virtually every time it is used in a context which indicates the one who believes is the one who has faith. It is often used of those who have come to faith, those who have become believers. And there's only one time that Paul uses this word here, believes, to refer to a belief in something other than the truth of the gospel, and that is in chapter 11, verse 18. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. But all the other times, he's talking about one who has faith. Love always believes, it always has faith, even when life seems to be crumbling about us. Adversity is never an occasion for unbelief. When Paul was in prison and awaiting a verdict from Caesar, was filled with faith, trusting that his death would either bring him into the presence of God or that his life would be used to draw others to God. We see that in Philippians 1. Suffering is not an excuse for the failure of faith. Rather, it's an occasion where love and faith may be demonstrated. Have you ever thought of how love and faith are connected? Because, I mean, Paul clearly connects these two all throughout Scripture. We see that. Let me give you a beautiful example of this from Scripture where we see love and faith working together. In the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, remember when Jesus calls his disciples, they're fishermen, they're out there fishing. What do they do? As soon as he calls them, what do they do? They leave their nets. They follow after the Lord. That's an amazing example of this because you see them, yeah, I'm sure that there was faith at work, but did they really know who Christ was? 
No. But there was a love there, there was, a, there was a faith and it's working together that causes them to leave all and follow the Lord. And so when we talk about this, love always has faith, right? There is this idea that it, it is believing, it, it's trusting in God, trusting in God, what he says, trusting in his word, Love always has faith. Our love for God and our trust in his word should give us unlimited faith in him. This should teach us that while we should always trust God who is faithful, we should never, let me repeat that again, we should never, let me say it one more time, we should never trust man. Never. Do not put your trust in in man we put our trust in God do not even trust me do not put your trust in any of the elders here of this church you put your trust in God always 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 God will never lead you astray God will always remain faithful Man will always lead you astray, and man is always unfaithful. You can't trust him. Right? So put your trust in God. And so when we talk about that love believes all things, we're talking about that love always trusts in God. Love is always trusting in his word. Let me give you an example of this. In Deuteronomy 13, 6 through 10, Moses warns the Israelites concerning those who would lead them astray and in the text there, he includes, among those who might mislead us, are those we call our loved ones. Your loved ones can and will lead you astray. You put your trust in God always. Love is never a license to uncritically accept all that we are told. The love that we find in the Bible is always based on truth. Philippians 1, 9 through 10. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. 1 Timothy 1, 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. See, our faith must not be in our fellow man, but in God, no matter how bad things may be, no matter how much grief others are going to dish out to us and say, why don't you do this? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? You trust God. It doesn't matter how, how angry the mob is screaming. You trust God always. Always put your trust in God. We should have faith in his promises to sustain us, to keep us from uh, falling and to perfect his work in us. We should have faith that God is using our trials and tribulations to strengthen our faith and to bring about our good and his glory. Love, true love, always manifests faith in God and his word. It is this kind of love that we are supposed to have. Do you have this kind of love? Do you have this kind of trust in God and his word that no matter what the circumstances are, I believe what God says, I trust him, and I'm going to do what he says. This is the kind of love that we are supposed to be putting on display. Here's the last one. Let's finish this up. 
love always has hope. So looking at the core of this verse, we see love always has hope. Now notice how this faith and hope are connected here. Faith is believing in what is ultimately real and true, but not immediately seen. We see that in Hebrews 11.1, right? Faith is the substance of things, what? Hoped for. It's not this kind of like, well, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe, I don't... No, it's rock solid. It's just that we can't see it yet, right? Faith believes God is going to give us that which our eyes do not and cannot see, but which God has promised to us. Hope is our longing and desire for those things which are future, which by faith we believe we shall receive. Romans uh, chapter 8, verses 20 through to 25 really helps us understand this about, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth, right? There's this longing and this waiting for the redemption of creation, right? It's going to happen. It's coming. And so it's something that we hope for. We may tell our daughter that we are going on a trip next week. Faith believes that we are going to do this. We say, hey, Evelyn, guess what? We're going on a trip next week. Faith believes we're going on a trip next week. And hope then eagerly anticipates the trip. It's something that we are strongly desiring in. We're going on a trip. I believe it. The hope then comes from the eager expectation. I can't wait till we go on that trip. That's what hope is. Listen to how Hebrews 10.23 uses hope. The author speaks of forgiveness of sins through the sacrifice of Jesus and confidence to enter the presence of God through the blood of Jesus. Listen to what he says here. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We might expect him to say the confession of our faith, but hope expresses the confidence of believing in a God who is faithful to keep his promises. Timothy helps clarify what is meant by hope. 1 Timothy 6, 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So what is your hope in? What's your confidence in? What do you look towards with eager expectation? What, what is it? You have something. We all do. We, we, all, we all put our confidence in something. It might be things. It might be people. It might be family. It might be places. It might be money. It might be assets. Many, as what Paul uh, told Timothy there, that they put their confidence in riches. Paul warns, do not set your hope on riches because they are uncertain. They will fail to deliver what they appear to promise. And so we need to have hope in God. Love never stops hoping in God. Love does not hope for a return from the one it shows love to. People will always let you down. Scripture says, for a piece of bread, man will transgress. That's, that's what you're worth to people. A piece of bread. They will sin against you, lie about you, everything for a piece of bread. They will steal from you for a piece of bread. That's what God says. So our hope should not be in man. 
Trust should not be in man, should be in God, should be in his word. So what is your faith in? What is your hope in? Even in the midst of suffering, difficulties, trials, all those things, it should be in God, should be in his word, should be trusting in him, believing him, because love endures all things, love hopes all things, bears all things, believes all things. Okay? We should never stop following after Christ, following God. And so is this the kind of love that marks your life? Is this the kind of love that marks my life? Is this the kind of love that we're putting on display? If we are honest before God, if I believe that we are, I believe that we are very deficient in biblical love. And I think it's something that we need to confess to God and return and repent and believe what Scripture says and put our trust in God and His Word. And I think by doing that, through the power of the Word of God, we'll start thinking biblically. And because we are thinking biblically, we will then start to live biblically in the way that God desires us to live. Let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.